Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. Remember 20 or so years ago when Malcolm Gladwell wrote about all the good that could come from crossing tipping points? Things like crime reduction and the explosive sales of hush puppies. Yeah, we're not going to talk about those today. Instead, I'm joined by Jens Orbach, the executive director of the Global Risks Foundation. We discuss the top global catastrophic risks, both man-made and naturally occurring. And we chat about how when poorly mitigated, these risks could intersect to cause exponential disasters. The tipping points of which Jens and I speak cause ecological collapse and irreversible climate change. Cheery, no? Well, admittedly, no. But important to think about, because to consider them is the first step to avoiding them. Thank you for joining me, Jens, and welcome to At Risk. Thank you very much. So tell me, is humankind the greatest threat to humankind? Yes, I would say to some extent. We can see that we have now weapons of mass destruction. We have uh, a risk of biological collapse. We have climate changes. And these are global catastrophic risks that are all man-made. So yes. Then, of course, we also have natural catastrophes like asteroids and supervolcanoes and to some extent pandemics as well. So, so but many of these new risks, they, they are developed by, by humans, yes, unfortunately. But maybe we are also the, the species that, that have the ability to sort them out. That's what I was going to ask you. Is there a silver lining in there? Does that mean if we are creating uh, these catastrophic risks that we can also mitigate them or even in a perfect world, eliminate them? I hope so. But we have really put ourselves in, in a tough position. And I, I wonder if, if, if men are able to get out of this. We, I, I guess that's what we are going to discuss. But it's it is very hard to put uh, global commons on the front. And, and uh, I think there is so much we have to do. We have, I think we have to, have, we have to realize that the, the big trees in Amazonas have a value before they are cut down. So, so I think we need another economic system as well to carry out this in a, in a, in a good way. So for how many years has the Global Challenges Foundation been uh, releasing its uh, Global uh, Catastrophic Risks Report? I think it's for uh, almost 10 years now that we have done that. There's one or two years where, where we didn't do it, but I think we have uh, around 10 years. And it's, it's most of a, a, I would say, scientific-based uh, report with, uh, as we think, the best uh, experts in different fields. And when we talk about global catastrophic risks, I mean, there are so many risks around, but these risks are threatening to wipe out at least 10% of humans on Earth. 
And is the trend line worsening? uh, Is our exposure to these catastrophic risks increasing? I think when it comes to these global catastrophic risks, they have increased. But at the same time, and that could be a paradox, I mean, in the short run, there are so many successes for for mankind. I mean, we are getting older, we are healthier, there is less poverty, we are spreading out on Earth, we are many more people around that can enjoy happiness. But the question is, how for how long will this uh, last? How long can mankind keep this way of living without threatening our planetary boundaries. And something that really struck me when I was uh, reading the 2021 report, and I think what the report very intentionally wanted to draw our attention to, was that we're at a point where our risks are intersecting. They're in, uh, I guess, an unvirtuous cycle, so to speak. How do we uh, where where to begin when when different types of risks uh, start interacting and and leading to a, an even more uh, dangerous situation? Yes, one one person in our board that is very good at this is Mr. Johan Rockström. He's head of the Potsdam Institute, and I think he's the one who introduced these uh, planetary boundaries where we are crossing them and and reaching tipping points. And in this last uh, risk report, we were also writing a little bit about how they are connected to each other. And and what I fear and many scientists fear is that there might be a domino effect if if we are going uh, crossing a borderline, then others can be crossed as well. Uh, and 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 some uh, many are uh, scientists argue that perhaps we have already passed at least four of these tipping points. And is there any point in our history that we can look to where we can draw upon a success where we've faced challenges on multiple policy fronts and we successfully confronted them? Yes, I think so. But there has been a very high price to get there. And maybe the price in the future will be that confronted with a risk or on, for instance, climate changes that would make a lot of pressure on on politicians that are in a leadership. So, I mean, when when the water surface is rising, things can happen. And, and such a high price was, I think, the Second World War. And after the Second World War, there was a lot of cooperation. And I think the, in the center of that was the, a new respect for, for humans. And that was developed in, in human rights. And, and, and the Bretton Woods system were with the, the UN at the center. So I think in, in the mid-late 40s, there was a lot of things happening in multilateral uh, uh, development that we that we could be very happy about today, humanitarian aid, development aid, and and other way of cooperating, not the least with with uh, good uh, rules around uh, trade and things like that. So I mean, there has been uh, 
periods where we have gone together, but, but that is often after a big crisis. And I think another positive example is the way that we handle the ozone layer with the, with the greenhouse gases. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, governance is, is a big part of the, of the means of meeting the, these challenges. Is that right? Yes, I would say that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a former politician here in Sweden. I've been on the municipality level and also in the government as a minister. And I think there are, I mean, there are so many things coming up. And, and there is a need for a table where you can solve them. Uh, if you have laws, you can maybe prevent them. And if you have courts, you can uh, write out conflict of interest. Uh, and, and, but we lack that on the global level. So, I mean, to some extent, there are strongest decides. And uh, there are some, I think, positive exam- example also with the International Criminal Court or an international court that could... Uh, but, but many countries don't give the legitimacy to these courts. So, so they are sometimes uh, handled on the battlefield or, or in bilateral negotiations, if, if at the best. But, but we, we miss a fundamental rule of law, I think, on the global arena. Yes, we seem to sign a lot of treaties, but there's no enforcement mechanisms. Is, is that a step we need to take? Uh, do, do we need to have, I guess it's great to have carrots, but do we need some sticks in these treaties? I, I would say so, yes. And uh, I think there, there is a, a discussion now on, uh, on, um, with the ICC, the Internet Criminal Court, that could uh, handle crimes against humanity, genocide. But uh, there is uh, suggestions on also having some sort of ecocide that you can bring uh, severe crime against Earth to that uh, criminal court. And I think that would be a, a, a very good development. When I look across the world, we, we've all experienced this pandemic. Uh, every nation has had a, a unique experience with it, but we, we've all been influenced and, and impacted by it and, and have had to respond to it. Do you think the pandemic is pushing us towards solutions or is it fracturing the world uh, even more? I think this is... Um a medal with two sides. I think that the pandemics have really shown the inequality on earth between countries, in countries. And I think actually one fear is that this inequality will also prevent us from solving these pandemics. There might be new uh, sorts of COVID coming up from uh, countries where the vaccine rate is very, very, very low. So I think without having some sort of justice or fairness in this, uh, in the way of of uh, dealing with the pandemics, we are we we are in big danger. At the same time, I think the world has shown that it can't bring forward vaccine in a, in a rather short time. And, and that has prevented a lot of 
deaths around the world, but uh, but I think these severe inequalities has really been shown by the pandemic. And I think it's really exacerbated um, some large differences of opinion in terms of even how people think about vaccines. Um, and we used to live in a world where, and we still live in this world, where, where a large majority of people still believe in vaccines and, and are willing to take them. But the minority of people who are against vaccines seem to, they're, they're more coordinated. They, they, they see each other. They, they are more linked than, than they have been in the past, which makes getting to these kinds of global solutions seem even more difficult. Yes, I think you're right there. And there, I mean, there are, I'm not an expert in this and there are so many theories, but I think many of these people feel that they are excluded by the society and they, their uh, belief in authority is rather weak. So I think we have a lesson to learn here as well. And I think this, many of these anti-vaccine people they, they are also bearing a protest in other fields, but it's coming up here. And of course, they feel strength if they can reach each other there. So what's the role of trust then in mitigating these really large, potentially catastrophic risks? I think it's huge. I mean, for, foremost, we have a Greta Thunberg, who is a Swede, saying that, listen to the scientists. But if people don't trust in, in scientists or in science, we have a huge problem. And I think it, it is very important that we have uh, panels like the IPCC, the climate panel, that could bring in research from all over the world and put it together. And, but if people doesn't trust it, we have we have a big problem but i think but i to some extent i i would say that most people at least trust in 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 uh, in science uh, but but if we don't that that is a, a an enormous threat i think when i when i was a politician i was very much influenced by statistics and engagement and if people are engaged and they can show statistics things can change uh, i think that's i think that's correct i think that's you know a big part of how we we need to come together um now the global catastrophic risk report really relies on science but there's also the world economic forum uh report on global risks. Um, how do these two reports pair together? I think they complement each other. I think the, the World Economic Forum Global Risk Report is more leaning towards um, experts in, uh, in, in businesses in, and leaders in government and in civil society and they do then also talk about different policies. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's what do these uh, people with these positions think about the future? Our report is more uh, scientific 
directly based with, with scientists in these different fields? And, and how, what do they see as, as the risk and, and possibly governance gaps? So I think there are, there, are, there, there are some differences here. So the one question I had, I was thinking, okay, so the foundation's report um, looks to science and that makes eminent sense. The WEF report uh, relies on you know business people, um, for lack of a better phrase, um, and political uh, influencers. Uh, is there a role for the artist in in helping us uh, both understand the very large risks that we face and helping us, I guess, mobilize towards action and towards solutions? Yes, and I think you just answered the question yourself, <laughs> and I think so very much. I mean, we have to feel these uh, threats on our skin, and it has to go through our skin. And, and their artists are very important. If it's a, a novelist or some, someone who can explain how it could look in the future. And uh, I mean, it's, it's very hard. I have four kids and to, to explain for them that uh, smoking is dangerous. But if I can, to some extent, show how, how life for them would be in... 45, 50 years if they smoke or visualize it in a way or make them feel that it's hard to breathe. Th that is something that, that's going to take that issue towards their skin and under their skin so it can affect their behavior. So I think artists are very important here. Interesting. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that you were engaged in politics. Um, you held several leadership roles. What caused you to make the choice to join the Global Challenges Foundation? Do you see the linkages there, or, or what? What was the what was your motivation? I think it was two motivation. The first one is that I'm I'm an economist, and and if you look at the the model we have for economists, it's it is having one severe problem, and it is that the market economy are having problem dealing with global commons, our, our water, our air, it doesn't have a price. So we use it and we use it as if it was endless. And when we have used it so much now, we are at the point where we, where scientists at least have discovered it is not endless. And if it make it, we are, we are at the tipping point where we have overused it because it, we are in an economic system where it doesn't have a price. That was one reason. Another reason, I think, is that I've, I think that global risks need global cooperation. And I'm sitting rather close to the Baltic Sea here. There are five countries around the Baltic Sea. And one-fourth of the Baltic Sea is already dead because we can't cooperate on it. We are self-interests when it comes, comes to the nations that will use uh, the water for fishing or whatever it is. And we have such a tremendous problem in, in taking care of that together. So when, when life is now crossing borders, we need politics, we need laws towards the cross borders, I think. So that, that was two reasons for me to join 
this uh, foundation. So thinking about those climate risks, and there are real attempts at global cooperation with respect to climate change, but have we nevertheless turned a corner where we have to at least devote some of our resources to trying to mitigate the consequences of climate change? Or should we still just be really focused as much as possible on prevention? And no, I think mitigation is needed. I mean, there are, there are countries that are sinking because the water surface is, uh, is getting higher and it will get higher. We know that, but it's, it's, we don't know the timing of that. So I think there's so much, I mean, we have drought in that we don't know the effect of, and we have flooding. So, I mean, we have to mitigate right now. And uh, I mean, this is perhaps a little bit negative, but, but perhaps it's needed. It's needed to see the effect of climate change before we are able to handle it. I, I, do, I hope we can do much before that, but, uh, but uh, we really have to deal with that today. But I mean, it's so hard to, to talk about this. We have the Gulf Stream, for instance, passing Scandinavian countries out here. Now there is melting water from Greenland coming down, and we don't know the effect of that melting water on the Gulf Stream. But if the Gulf Stream stops, there's going to be ice age here. And uh, so there, there, I mean, there are these big, big, big systems that are very hard to deal with from an individual perspective. And therefore, we need policies that is system changing, that gives us incentive to act in a, in a certain way. Because I don't think you can lay all these decision making on individuals. You also need to have uh, systems that gives incentive for people to to take a train rather than going on an airplane. I think that's such an important point, Jens, because just as one example, um, uh, I work in the governance space and I was speaking with a, a diverse group of leaders. They weren't all from one company. They're, they were leaders across several different sectors. And we were talking about environmental and social and governance. And one leader said to me, you're pushing us to, to focus on ESG at our companies. But when I look across the country, uh, individuals aren't even making choices to, to minimize their impact on climate. So why should um, a company cost itself money or or limit its profitability when, when when we're not seeing that change at an individual level and mm -hmm. somebody raised their hand and just said well people just feel like this problem is too big now like maybe they take a train or not a plane but it, it feels so overwhelming and so massive it, it, it feels a little bit out of the individual's hands and mm. I think that can be very paralyzing and and that really scares me um how 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 do we how do we both motivate people at an individual level but also um mobilize that that 
that larger kind of global cooperation at a national level and even at corporate levels? I think the pandemics has really shown, I, I, I was really not surprised, but impressed by the severe decisions taking on a national level that would hinder people from visiting a restaurant or even going out. So, I mean, you used to say that these national policy, they are like big tankers. They, they can shift, but it takes a long. Here it could, go, it could take from one day to another and new restrictions. So I think changes can be done, but they, had to be, they have to be understood. And, and that, I think, is the big challenge with these big global catastrophic risks. But uh, so we have to listen to scientists to see what is at stake. And just if it's a small risk, we shouldn't go up in a plane with a risk of 3% of, that we would not come down. So I think we need to have structural decisions also for corporations, uh, businesses, and individuals that, that gives us incentive to act in, in, in another way. And I mean, the decisions on uh, how you can use uh, fossil cars in, in Europe has really changed the whole uh, business. Uh, you have to produce electric cars to be, to be on the market in, in the relative near future. And that is also by political decisions. Also, although they are, they are, they are not easy to to come through because there are strong lobbies that have an interest in the in the fossil driven economy this brings up another topic um that uh, that i also want to try and uh, bring home to to canada which is the risk of nuclear war there has to be a very small number of people left on this planet who have ever lived their lives without uh, the fear of nuclear war, or at least without the risk of it. What can a country like Canada do uh, to help mitigate or lessen the risk of nuclear war? Canada is a, is a member of the NATO and uh, some sort of non-strike first policy might be something, I think, I think actually there are there are a big need of treaties. The treaties that we are having are falling apart just to a large extent. So the non-proliferation treaty needs to be renewed, and there need to be treaties like on the biological or chemical uh, warfare. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this we are in in a bad situation here. That we can, that we still are carrying out conflicts on the battlefield. It, it doesn't seem very civilized in a way, if I may say so. So here, if we also can develop courts that we could give legitimacy to have some sort of saying in these conflicts, that that would also be a, a way to take away the the need for arm uh, con armed conflicts yeah my, my answer here is a little blurry but I, I but I think that there is a need for for stronger international treaties when it comes to weapons of mass destruction 
Yeah, I think the situation in Canada is really, um, it's not it's not that, that it's complicated. It's more like it's awkward. I think in general, Canada would like to adopt a peaceful posture and would like to lead on non-proliferation and um, or even prohibition treaties. Uh, but we're very much reliant on NATO. We're very much uh, reliant uh, on the United States um, and the protection they afford us. Um, I think we feel like we're in a, we're we're in a bit of a of a bind in terms of of how we can effectively lead on this issue. Mm. I think it's it is a balance act. I think also for your politicians to to have people feel that they are safe and that they belong to a strong alliance. But at the same time, I think in the long range, we need to have other ways to sort out conflicts. I mean, we have, if there is a conflict between you and me, I think we can, we can sort it out. And politics is, is a way of, of sorting out conflict of interest without uh, weapons. And, and, and I think we also have to develop courts on, on the global scale much more. Now, how about those natural risks or their naturally arising risks, like something like a super volcanic eruption? Um, what is the value of including that risk in the report when it's a very difficult to predict risk and it's unclear what it is we could do to try and stop it yes you can you can really argue on that and uh, i think that goes for asteroids too maybe but but if we didn't talk about them there there wouldn't be a future where we can examine them and have the scientists look at it and maybe i wouldn't be surprised if we can find some ways to perhaps uh, not stop them, but uh, prolong life on Earth if if it came, and and we have we see that now when it comes to uh, uh, other risk like, for instance, the the asteroids that there are research now with NASA, NASA, and others to explore ways to 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 try to stop it. Now a silly question for you. Did the Global Foundation team watch Don't Look Up? Yes, and I even wrote, wrote about it, an article here in, in Sweden, that uh, I think it was a, a good movie showing the difficulties that scientists have to compete with uh, other short-range uh, interests among politics politicians and also other interests uh, around journalism. So I, I really hope that we will also support and, and have a strong, trustworthy journalism and then a discussion on that that was brought up in this film. I thought it did do a good job of showing the double bind. So on the one hand... Uh, 
we always fear being Cassandra, right? The myth of Cassandra. You know, she accurately made predictions, but nobody would ever believe her or listen to mm-hmm. her. And so, so, so we saw the scientists struggle to convince people that their calculations were correct and that, that this was very much a, a, a real threat. But then on the other side, once you're believed, uh, the, the distorting impact of attention and and how that can kind of thwart your your best intentions um i thought i thought they did quite a nice job of that <laughs> yes I, I think so too it's just funny and and uh, yeah it, it dealt a lot i think with these challenges that we have to be believed and uh, to come through the the noise of everything else that is going up on out out there and i think I mean, mankind is mankind, and perhaps we have a very big difficulties in, in dealing with threats that are more than five years away. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, there's been some great writing on as amazing as the human brain is, that, that, that it can, as but one example, develop an mRNA vaccine in such a, a short period of time just when we need it um but it it makes it hard the brain is also does not cope well with kind of big amorphous risks like climate change um and and it doesn't cope well with kind of keeping that sense of of alert and danger and urgency um at the levels that we sometimes need to Right, and I, and I would add to that that we are we are very stuck into an economic system where we don't care, or that system doesn't care very much with our global commons. That we think that water and air and soil is is there endless, but but it's shown that it's not, and we don't know really the the effects on on loss in biodiversity. I'm a beekeeper myself since 30 years, and and today in Sweden the honeybee would not perhaps cope without me as a beekeeper, and we don't know the long-range effect of that. The density of of insects is is going down in Sweden and other European countries. We 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 don't know what what will what that will bring us in the in the rather near future. So my final question for you really tries to get at the difficulty of forecasting those risks. You, The foundation prepares this report and it itemizes what those risks are. And at the World Economic Forum and, and I'm sure at Global Challenges as well, you know, we talked about pandemics for a long time and and pointed out our our lack of preparedness here in Canada we we experienced SARS um, very very directly uh, in the city of Toronto um but there's this gap between understanding that something could happen and being able to uh, mobilize in a sustainable way um the resources to to act on them how what what are what in your view sitting 
in this like very effective perch, what's the key to to trying to to move from prediction and understanding to action and and maintaining that attention? Well, if I should use one word that we also have used before in this nice conversation, it is, I think, trust. That that we can trust that uh, if we do this, others should do it as well. That we have a transition that is just in a way. Uh, Because we need to be many that are involved in this. And I can... Sometimes I understand that there is a, a hard thing for, for the Global South to, to be pressured to do things when they can see that there was perhaps the, the Western countries who, who made these problems. So I think we, we need to take good care of this and it has to cost us some. And... Uh, so, so that I think that on, on many, many, many desks of politicians, I think, how can you solve this in a just transition? Because I think, I don't know how it is in Canada, but here in Sweden, the gas prices have gone up and there are huge protests ar- around that. And uh, because there is a feeling that we are paying more than others and people in the countryside, they need their, their, their car more. So we have to find some sort of just transition. I think that is the, the key. And, uh, and, and in, in that, there, is, then there need to be some sort of trust in the systems that we develop. Jens, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing all of your insights. And hopefully we're a little bit closer to living in a less risky world. Yeah, thank you very much.